In this bumper episode, we're going to try and track how William manages to control the whole of England. You have to remember, simply killing Harold Godwinson at the Battle of Hastings in October 1066 doesn't automatically make him king. It creates a job vacancy, but then there's an awful lot of work that needs doing after that. So we're going to cover the 10 years from 1066 to 1076. This is going to take a bit of doing. So I would recommend if you're going to listen to this podcast, you do one of two things. Firstly, make yourself a cup of tea. We're going to be here for some considerable time. Secondly, if you're using this for revision purposes, it's probably going to be a good idea to either have your notes in front of you or have a blank piece of paper on which you can create a timeline as we go. If you do not have some way of keeping all of this stuff straight in your head, you are going to struggle immeasurably. So, where are we? October 1066. Harold Godwinson and anywhere between a third and a half of the ruling elite of England lies dead on the field of Hastings. William makes his way inland. The first place he heads for is towards Canterbury, the absolute heart of the church in England. He takes this with very little difficulty and then he makes his way towards London. But at London he is forced back. He then makes his way to the surrounding area and burns it. Now, this is interesting. His first reaction is violence. Now remember this as we start looking at all of the different tactics that he uses. Right here at the very beginning he is showing the people of England what will happen to those people who try and stand against him. Having burnt the area around Southwark they then move towards Winchester. Now Winchester is the ancient capital of England. Winchester was actually the main city long before London and it's also the site of the treasury where the coins are minted. Therefore from an economic point of view it's important to get hold of it but it's also an important place in terms of the church and remember William has said that he is coming to England in order to restore the English church to rescue it from corruption. And an interesting sideline for this is Archbishop Stigand. Now he's been a bishop since 1043 and he's been involved in the relationship between Godwin and Edward all the way through this. He's the most powerful churchman in England, the Archbishop of Canterbury. He supports Edgar as the new king. William doesn't like this for fairly obvious reasons. Now remember this because this figures into this whole thing of the Normans extending their control over the church. But they've taken Winchester and then after Stigand has tried to put Edgar onto the throne in November 1066 the Witan doesn't give him enough support. This is the point where a lot of the nobles and the bishops come together in a meeting at Berkhamstead with William. And this is a key moment these earls, these noblemen, these thanes, these landholders might be expecting that this man, this barbarian, this feared warrior is going to slaughter them. After all, that's what he did at Hastings. But instead, 
he offers them a deal. If they kneel and swear an oath of fealty, they can go back, they can manage their lands, they can keep their titles, and everything will be as it was before. The only difference is that now they have recognised that William is the rightful King of England. It's worth spending a little moment to talk about the idea of an oath of fealty, because this is going to be something that we're going to have to talk about again when we come to address the feudal system. An oath of fealty is a transactional agreement. I swear to serve you. I recognise you as my overlord, my liege lord. I owe you my loyalty, and in return I will come when you call. I will serve you. I will fight for you. In return for that, I, as liege lord, accept your oath, and I take your loyalty, and I will give you a grant of land, or uh, the ability to raise taxes, or some sort of a reward, some sort of responsibility, and I will protect you. So if anybody attacks you, I will protect you. The oath of fealty is, as I say, it's a transaction. It's a two-way street. This is how the Normans have run their dukedom since it was established by Rollo back in the 900s. So Edgar the Etheling, Edwin and Morcar, remember them, the Earls of the North, the ones who rose up against Tostig, and the ones who were at the Battle of Fulford Gate and were defeated by Harold Hadrada, they all kneel and they all swear an oath of loyalty, and they're not alone. A huge number of English noblemen do exactly the same. At this point, it's more or less over. And at this point, William orders another burning, the land between Berkhamsted and London. And you can look at this two ways. Either this is the action of a, of a tyrant, of a madman, or it's by way of a reminder to those people who have not yet sworn an oath. Look at what happened to these guys. They swore an oath. They've got their lands. They've got their titles. Everything is exactly as it was. They've not been harmed in any way. Look at these people. These people stood against me. These people tried to deny me. Look at what I have done to them. It's very much a carrot and stick sort of approach. By Christmas Day, 1066, William is secure enough in his position to have himself crowned. Interestingly, he refuses to be crowned by Archbishop Stigand and is instead crowned by the Archbishop of York. Just to look ahead, we're going to do most of this chronologically, but Stigand kind of drops out of our little story at this point. He is removed from his position as Archbishop of Canterbury in 1070, and William replaces him with his own personal spiritual advisor, Lanfranc, who we've heard of before. But anyway, that's Stigand gone. Christmas Day, 1066, William is crowned King of England. In 1067, the next year, William goes back to Normandy. Now this is something you're going to have to remember throughout this whole period. 
I've talked before about the lack of sources that we have when it comes to movement and exactly what William's doing at any given point. There are big chunks here where we do not know where he is. We do know that in order to manage both of his holdings, both his kingdom in England and his duchy in Normandy, he's traveling backwards and forwards quite a lot. It seems to have been something that was quite difficult in order to manage both of those things. As an aside, you're going to see that right the way through the medieval period. When we get to the Angevin Empire, you're going to see kings of England having to spend a ridiculous amount of time in northern France and Aquitaine and various other areas. But, for the moment, in March 1067, William heads back over the Channel to Normandy. There is some unrest in Herefordshire and Wales, and we will talk in more detail about the March of Barons later on. But the key thing to remember here is that the area between England and Wales is wild, untamed country. It's not been cleared, it's not been set up for fields and planting, it's an area of outlaws, because wherever you get a border there is the opportunity for raiding. And Wales raids England quite frequently, and England raids Wales quite frequently. You'll see the exact same thing on the Scottish border. This, these marches, this area between England and Wales, is quite a significant area of unrest. Trouble breaks out specifically in 1067 when Edric the Wild, who's a, a Herefordshire Thane, an Englishman, starts a revolt. He gets a large number of English followers. He has a lot of support from the Welsh princes, and he manages to start stealing lots of property all along the border. Now, he doesn't actually secure enough control of this area to basically set himself up as a rival to William, but he is making a lot of trouble and launching attacks on Cheshire, Stafford, all sorts of those areas. Eventually, they get defeated in 1069 at Shrewsbury, and William is forced to lead his forces personally against him. Now again, that's getting a little bit further ahead. So let's turn back to 1067. In 1067, there is this unrest in Herefordshire and Wales. That's Edric the Wild. In December, William returns to England and starts distributing land in various areas of England to his loyal barons. This is important. This is his mechanism of control. We know that the Normans built castles, and a castle is a garrison. That is a place where you put your troops, and where your troops can be deployed at any given moment. The troops, however, are no use to you without a commander, and this is where the barons come in. The barons are his most trusted lieutenants, his most skilled warriors, the people he can trust to run these areas of the country for him according to the idea of the oath of fealty. His most trusted friends he's going to end up putting on the Welsh border and they will become the marcher lords. We won't talk about all of them, we will however just mention William Fitzosborne who is one of his closest friends and he is put in place as one of these marcher lords. We're going to come back to him later. So 1067 ends with still some unrest in the Welsh borders. It has not as yet come to a head. 
Then, in 1068, the city of Exeter rebels against William's rule. And the king goes there personally. Remember, he's come back into the country in December 1067. He goes there personally and he lays siege to it, to the city, with an army of Englishmen and Normans. The city manages to hold out for 18 days, which is no mean feat. When you're holding out in a siege, you are completely surrounded. There's no food, no water, nothing getting in. But eventually, as is the way, if a siege is not broken, you are going to have to surrender. And that's what Exeter has to do after 18 days. And the king builds a castle there. Remember, castles aren't just garrisons. They are also psychological warfare. They are a reminder. We are here. We are in charge. We are watching you. So it's quite natural at this point that the king, having identified this as a trouble spot because they've caused him trouble, will plonk a castle there. On his way back to London, William stops in at Bristol and Gloucester. There was a thing in the news a little while ago about um, what some people were calling the Second Battle of Hastings. It's around this point that three of Harold Godwinson's sons arrive with some troops that they've raised and they make an attempt to invade. They are fought off and dealt with and it's somewhere around the mouth of the Severn, somewhere around the Somerset coast. We don't know exactly where. They do think they've managed to find the battle site this last year, which is why it was in the news. But from a historical point of view, it's largely meaningless. It's barely even a blip. It's not something that causes William any difficulty. And you can quite safely lump that in with this rebellion in Exeter and the rest of the Southwest in 1068. At this point, while William is, shall we say, distracted, maybe, by dealing with the unrest in the Southwest, three people disappear from his court. They are three people who have sworn an oath of fealty to him, but he's been keeping them very, very close. You've probably heard the old saying, you keep your friends close and your enemies even closer. After they swore the oath of fealty, Edwin, Edgar and Morcar were almost under house arrest. They were part of William's court, but they were kept with him, unable to go back to the north. This is the point, somewhere around the end of 1068, where the three of them slip away and head up to the north. And this sets the stage for the events of 1069 and the harrying of the north. It begins with Edwin, Edgar and Morcar raising some forces in the north. The men of the north rise up with them. Remember, Edwin and Morcar led them before in their rebellion against Tostig, led them in the fight against Hadrada. So it's quite natural that they will follow. And there are going to be a number of people who will still regard Edgar as being the rightful king of England, someone whose birthright was stolen from him by the usurper from Normandy. So they rise up. In January, the Norman Earl, Robert de Comnines, is burned to death in Durham. The Bishop of York's house is burnt down. Both of these things are a direct provocation, a direct attack on William's authority. He's been stamping his authority on the English church and he's also been placing his barons into positions of power. Both of those things are direct challenges to him. The rebellion spreads as far as York. 
Now remember, as we've talked about before, York is the key to the north. It sits astride the Great North Road. Any trade going north or south has to pass through there. This is why the city of York is heavily fortified and is fought over time and time and time again through history. If you hold York, you hold the north. So the rebellions spread to York. And it's about this time that just when you would think that things couldn't get any worse for William, something does. The north of England is not solely culturally Anglo-Saxon. There is a huge Norse influence. The Vikings have been coming and going for 200 years at this point. The north of England was at one point entirely ruled by the Vikings under the Dane law. So there are links between these two areas, quite strong links. Remember, when Tostig was exiled by his brother and he did a runner, where did he go? He went to the King of Norway. So, in 1069, 240 Viking ships sail in to North Yorkshire. They join up with the army led by Edgar and Waltheof. Now remember Waltheof, he's one of the English earls. This is the first time we've met him, but we're going to hear of him again. Edgar and Waltheof join together and rise up. And between them, they manage to capture the castle of York. This is a big deal. Remember what we've said. The castles are the key to how William is controlling these areas. They are both strategically vital in terms of garrisons and in terms of where you deploy your troops. They're also an important part of your command and control system where you put your barons. But perhaps more importantly, they are psychological markers. They are constant physical reminders that the Normans now rule this country, whether you like it or not. And the rebels capture a castle. This is catastrophic. So William raises his army and marches north. There's only one problem. He's outnumbered. 240 Viking ships, each of which is carrying 30, 40 Vikings. That's, that's a large number. That's a couple of thousand very trained warriors. Not to mention the men of the north that have risen up behind Edgar and Waltheof. That's quite a difficult ask. But this is William. William does not always go down the route of military conquest, even though we know he's good at it. We've seen before, he deals with people through negotiation, through bargaining, through making deals. And that's exactly what happens here. He arrives in the north, and the Vikings withdraw back to their ships. William then sends a message to them. He's well aware of what the Vikings actually want, just like you are. We all know when the Vikings go somewhere, they're not really interested in conquest. What they're interested in is loot, is money. They are actually traders first and foremost. The raids that they do are to get slaves and goods which can then be sold elsewhere. So William buys them off. He offers them some money to leave and offered the choice of having some loot or having to then fight for the same amount of loot, they just take the loot, and then they leave. 
And at this point, the rebellion more or less collapses because there's nothing they can do now. They have a poorly armed group of peasant soldiers. The people they were actually counting on, the Vikings, have long gone. And so now they're facing a Norman army and they can't win. Edgar flees north to Scotland where he knows he will find a warm welcome because his sister has just married King Malcolm. Little aside, this is the same Malcolm that you meet in Shakespeare's play of Macbeth. This is the king who murdered Macbeth, well, killed Macbeth, I suppose you should say, rather than murdered, in order to take the Scottish throne. In any case, Malcolm has just married Edgar's sister. So Edgar flees north. Edwin and Morcar do a runner. I said you'd be hearing that phrase quite often. They disappear. We'll pick up what happens to Edwin and Morcar in a moment. Waltheof is captured, and he's offered the same deal that everybody else was offered. This is the first time you've stepped out of line, says William. Therefore, you can swear an oath of fealty, and all will be forgotten, or you can be punished. Waltheof swears the oath, and we'll pick up where Waltheof ends up later on. In the meantime, we're now in a position where William is in the north of England and the rebellion has been dealt with. It's finished. It's over. But, 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 the north is a problem. It's physically a long way away from William's main power base down in the south. There's always that little niggle that it might rise up again. There's always that concern that it's just that little bit too far away to keep an obvious hold on. And then there's the matter of his baron being murdered. Then there's the matter of Edwin and Morcar still being on the loose somewhere. William needs to do something to send a message. And what he decides to do is what has gone down in history as the harrying of the North. Basically speaking, what William does is he kills every animal he can get his hands on. Livestock, game animals, everything. He burns every field he can find. He destroys every house he can find. And then he sows the ground with salt to ensure that nothing will grow there again. This is nothing less than the calculated destruction of all living areas in the north. But perhaps more importantly, the destruction of all foodstuff in the north. It is, according to some historians, an act of genocide. The deliberate and systematic extermination of all life in the north. A hundred thousand people starved to death. The reason we can be fairly secure on that number, even given the way that medieval chroniclers tend to over-exaggerate numbers, is this. A large number of the medieval chronicles, William of Poitiers, Odoric Vitalis, are all big fans of William of Normandy. But when it comes to the harrying of the North, they say he did too much. They say that what he did was wrong, and they cannot defend his actions and they are quite specific in what his actions were. So when you have a source which is normally biased in favour of somebody, but then it says, actually, he did this, you can be fairly sure that what they're saying is accurate 
when they drop their bias and actually start to condemn his actions. And we know that his actions were effective. By the time of the Doomsday Survey in 1086, over 80% of Yorkshire was laid waste, uninhabited, unfarmed, unused, because the population was dead. The harrying of the North goes down in history as one of the greatest catastrophes to have hit the North of England. And it was done to prove a point. And it's quite an effective point at that. Because you have to imagine all of the people who are watching this. And the people who are watching this are a number of them. First off, there's King Malcolm of Scotland. He looks at what William's done. Is he going to get involved? Of course he's not. What if William comes north and does the same to Scotland? What about the other English earls? If they decide to foment rebellion in their areas, what's going to happen to them? What's going to happen to their people? The English people in various areas. They hear of what's happened. Are they going to cross William? Perhaps most interestingly, what we know it does is it completely neutralises the threat of Edwin and Morcar. Edwin and Morcar do a runner after the collapse of the rebellion in the north. They split. Edwin goes north, assuming that he will be able to find protection with Malcolm in Scotland. Before he gets there, he is betrayed by three of his followers, turned over to the Normans, and murdered. Morcar, on the other hand, starts roaming around the countryside trying to raise rebellion. But the response that he gets everywhere is this. You were the Lord of the North. You had a duty to protect your people. Where were you when they were slaughtered? And nobody, but nobody, will rise up with him. So in that sense, we can see that the Herring of the North was very, very clever and very, very effective. It neutralizes the threat of Morcar, which is a good job because at this point, another threat raises its head. Down in East Anglia, down in the Fenlands, those flat, mist-shrouded, wet areas where there's no roads, no tracks, where areas of it can be cut off for weeks and months at a time by wet weather, down in the Fens, there is a man called Hedowood the Wake. A man so dangerous, so out of control, that his own father declared him an outlaw and exiled him from the country. Come the invasion, he returns, and he starts to raise up people against the Norman conquerors. Now, if this all sounds a little bit overdramatic, that's because one of our main sources for it is the Gesta Herawadi which is a, a, a song, a folk tale, if you like, about what was going on with Hedowood the Wake. It's overdramatic. It's over-exaggerated. It's more interested in entertaining the people who are listening to the story than it is in passing on historical fact. But it's really good fun, and it gives you a fantastic story. So we're going to use it quite heavily when we talk about what happened with Hedowood the Wake. We don't know a lot about him. We do know that he was uh, an outlaw by the time he came back to the country. We know that he was based in the Fenlands. 
we know that he and his followers carried out a form of guerrilla warfare, that is, hit-and-run attacks. They did not arrive in massed array and launch a battle against people. They would come out, attack the Normans, and then disappear again into the Fenlands. This is quite effective. Throughout history, you will see time and time again, whether it's Vietnam, whether it's Spain against the forces of Napoleon, whether it's Iraq against the British and American forces, guerrilla warfare is incredibly difficult for ordinary armies to deal with. And so it proves for the Normans. Eventually, the rebels take control of an abbey called Eli which is buried in the middle of the fens. It is on an island, surrounded by water and wetland, very difficult to reach except by boat. Most importantly, this means that an organized army cannot attack it. Now, depending on the source you prefer, what happens in the fens goes one of two ways. According to Odric Vitalis, who is working, we think, off the part of William of Poitiers' notes, which have since disappeared, William goes down there himself and is, in short order, able to deal with these rebels. That's one version. It's not the fun version. The fun version comes from the Gesta Heroade, and the fun version goes something like this. All of our sources agree that you've got Herod the Wake down there. He is joined by Earl Morcar, because remember, Morcar cannot raise a rebellion of his own, so he goes and joins him. He's also joined by the Danish king, Swain, who has still not given up on the idea of managing to snip off some parts of this kingdom. He's the one who was involved up in the north as well. So you've got these three quite powerful men down in the fens. William goes to deal with them. Both sources agree to that point. This is where the two sources start to disagree. The probably slightly more realistic but duller version of Odric Vitalis says that William defeats them in short order. Fine, not a problem. Let's now talk about the fun stuff. In the Gesta Heroade, William lays siege to the island of Eli. He can't reach it though, so he builds a rampart. Something two or three miles long, an enormous bridge, an incredible feat of engineering with a fortified platform in the middle of it, which he can use to attack the abbey from. However, too many Norman soldiers get onto this rampart and so it sinks into the marsh. They then build an enormous platform, and on this enormous platform, in order to destroy the morale of the rebels, William gets a local witch and he places her on the top of the platform and there within full sight of the abbey on the island in the middle of the Fenlands, she casts spells and curses and hurls insults at the rebels. Hereward launches a counterattack and sets fire to this tower and burns it to the ground. William seems to be unable to defeat Hereward, he can't get in there, this can't be done, but then the monks of the abbey betray Hereward and show William a secret route to get to the island. And William falls upon the abbey like a natural disaster, and all of the rebels are captured, except Hereward, who escapes into the night.
a great story. Whether it's true or not is largely immaterial. What's important is that the rebellion of Herod the Wake is brought to an end and everybody involved is captured except Herod, who disappears. And he answers a very important need, I think, for the English. They are a defeated nation. They've been done for. This is the last real uprising led by English people in this period. This is the last gasp of English revolt against the Norman overlords. And the fact that he disappears, that Hereward vanishes into the mists, that's really important because it becomes a story that the English can tell each other. Hereward will come back. He will save us. He will lead us out of this horrible slavery we find ourselves in. He will help us rise up and throw off the Norman yoke. Absolute nonsense, of course, but it is an important story. It's so important that that story is going to come round again. Shortly after the Gesta Herowadi is written, you start to see the figure of Robin Hood cropping up in various folk tales and songs and things of that ilk. So you can see these stories never die. They just come back with a different mask and a different hat and probably with a feather in it and green tights. Now, as I say, Herowood's revolt is the last real attempt by the English to throw off the Norman oppressors. After this, you get something slightly different. In 1072, Scotland invades northern England. William responds to this by riding north and invading Scotland. This is another interesting moment in learning about William. If William really was the conqueror of legend, when he invaded Scotland, he would take it over and add it to his kingdom. But he doesn't. He basically rides north simply in order to slap King Malcolm around a little bit and tell him to wind his neck in. Having done this, and having got King Malcolm to recognise that William is overlord of these British Isles, he then simply goes south again, except for one tiny little detail. Remember, Edgar the Etheling, now known as Edgar the Outlaw, the only other contestant for the English throne still standing, is up there in Scotland. It seems likely that part of the deal between Malcolm and William was to ensure that Edgar had to go. And he is, in short order, somewhere around 1072, kicked out of Scotland. And he disappears to Flanders, over in Holland, where he kind of drops out of our story. He still is around, he's still present in history, and indeed ends up coming back to England and being involved in England around the time of the First Crusade. But from this point forth, he is of absolutely no importance to William, and certainly not a threat to William's control. Morcar was captured with the rest of the rebels in East Anglia. He's placed under arrest, where he is kept under arrest in Normandy for the rest of William's life. He is kept there until William dies in the 1080s, at which point William, on his deathbed, asks that Morcar should be released. Morcar is released. William's son puts him straight back in prison. And then we hear nothing more about Morcar. So the last of the Northern Earls passes away somewhere in a prison, unknown and unremarked. 
Now, just because the English don't rise up against William doesn't mean that it's all over, because there's one more large revolt to come, and it comes from a very unexpected source. It comes from his own barons. When William was trying to establish his control of England, he was relatively clever in how he split up people's land. He would not give any baron a large lump of land somewhere in in the country, not joined together, because otherwise you end up with the same problem you had with Earl Godwin that Edward was facing, which is this person has a huge power base in one place, and that makes him a threat. What William would do is he would give somebody a bit of land up in the north, a little bit of land in the east, a little bit of land in the south, a little in the west, so that no one baron could draw together all of his force and rebel against him. There's only one area where this didn't hold true. This is the Welsh marches. Here, William puts his most warlike, his most aggressive, and his most trustworthy Norman barons. Basically, the marcher lords. Now, we're going to talk later about how the marcher lords were different and how they run their areas. But for our purposes, the thing to remember is they have all of their power in one area. They have to, to be effective at what they're supposed to be doing, which is keeping the Welsh under control. And that's all fine. Until William Fitzosburn, one of the original ones, dies. And he is replaced by his son, Roger de Bretul. Now, this is where it gets tricky. You see, William faces a revolt from his own Norman earls. It starts with Ralph de Gale. But he's not too much of a problem. But he's joined by Roger de Bretul. Now, the reason Roger's upset with William is that King William has forbidden Ralph's marriage. And also, he's been taking various bits of power away from Roger that Roger's father, William Fitzosborne, had had. And he regards this as being a direct attack on him personally. This is the thing. This is a disagreement between a Norman Earl and the Norman King. This is personal. A number of people start to side with the Norman Earls against King William, not least of which is the last English Earl standing. If you think about all the names we've mentioned, you should have worked out who that is. Edwin is gone, Morcar is gone, Edgar is gone. The last one left is Waltheof, Earl of Northamptonshire and Huntingdonshire. King Philip of France is encouraging Roger to rebel because he now regards William as being a threat and he wants William to be focusing on England rather than making any further territorial gains in France. Ralph and Roger are also promised a lot of aid from overseas. William's made a lot of enemies over the years, basically because he's becoming very, very powerful and he's proving himself to be a major threat to everybody. So a lot of people would like to see him taken down. 
What's interesting is that William doesn't deal with the rebellion of the Norman earls himself. He leaves it to two people. And the two people he leaves it to are both churchmen. He leaves it to Lanfranc and Odo, who is his half-brother. Lanfranc sends troops to Herefordshire, and Odo forces Ralph to retreat to Norwich, and eventually to go overseas and end up in Brittany. Waltheof tries to make peace with William, but remember how this goes. He's had his chance. He swore an oath, and now he's broken it. As a result, Waltheof is beheaded in 1075, the last of the English earls. Everybody in a position of power in England is now a Norman. During the Christmas of 1075, William has all of the people who have rebelled against him beheaded after they've been blinded. Earl Roger is imprisoned instead of murdered, probably because William still had some residual affection for his father. William doesn't die until 1087. There are sporadic little pockets of rebellion, unrest, nothing major. This revolt of the Norman earls in 1075 is the last major threat. So you can certainly say that by the end of Christmas, the dawning of the year 1076, that's pretty much it. It's taken ten years, but now William is in absolute control of England. We've covered a lot of ground there, it's, it's been nearly an hour, and there's been a lot of detail, a lot of names, and a lot of places, and a lot of times and dates. In order to remember all of this for your exam, I would suggest that a timeline is your friend, and you can always write page numbers on the timeline to point you towards the correct bit in your notes, or you could just put all of the information you need on the timeline. But there are two things that I would draw your attention to. The first is this. Throughout all of these ten years, you see William do different things. And it's almost impossible to reconcile these different Williams in your head. Trying to get your head around the same William who le lets Edwin and Morcar live in 1066, and then Waltheof in 1069, trying to get him into the same headspace as the William who commits an act of genocide against every man, woman, and child in the North can be quite difficult. So the key thing to take away, I would suggest, is to remember that William of Normandy, William the Bastard, William the Conqueror, William, King of England, is an incredibly complicated person and he does not act the same every time he does not use the same tactic every time he changes his tactics depending on the situation he's facing but one thing we can say based on what happened after the meeting at Berkhamstead based on what happened in the Herring of the North and based on his response to the revolt of the Norman Earls if he believes he has been personally betrayed, he will slaughter you. All bets are off. That 
is a very clear fact. And that is something that surely, surely must have weighed in the balance of all these people who were trying to decide whether or not they should rise up against him. They must have known the gamble that they were taking. Like anything else with history, we simply don't know because the sources aren't there. It is impossible to know what people thought, what people felt. But we can hazard a guess. So there you have it. Ten years of revolts, rebellions, massacres, deaths, covering the whole of the British Isles. But the key thing to remember, after ten years, there is no going back. After ten years, England is now a Norman country. With the death of Earl Waltheof, every single person in a position of authority in Britain is now a Norman. And that means that everything is going to change. And that's what we'll pick up in the next few episodes. Thank you very much for listening. Good luck in your exams.